sermon series this morning. Uh, our, our bread and butter, our usual here, is just to work right through books of the Bible, paragraph by paragraph, um, but we've put things on hold to do a series we call Politics by Design. Uh, now, it's, it's a funny thing, but by talking about politics in the context of Christianity, uh, we've officially broken the taboo of all good conversation. Right? We're talking about politics, we're talking about religion. I thought we would this morning just push a little bit further and bring up the demonic realm and just go for a well-rounded, uh, hard-to-swallow um, truth, if you will. Um, so far in the series, if you've been with us, uh, in the last three weeks we've looked at three different aspects or facets of what I would say is a foundation of a Christian view of politics. In fact, if you've been with us, you've probably gone, okay, this is all great, it's helpful, I have my bearings now, but when are we going to get practical? When are we going to actually talk about uh, what to do or not do, how to think or not think? Not yet, but we're almost there. Next week, I promise, we'll start to talk about what it looks like for us to do these things, but here's what I would suggest to you. As we've been laying out our bearings, basically what we've done so far is... Uh, is relatable to the points on a compass. Okay, so we began the first week talking about that idea of all human beings created in the image of God and to have dominion over the earth in a way that represents God's good rule. That's the true north of our compass. It gives us the bearings. It helps us to understand what God uh, was about in creating human life and the good version of where things are supposed to be. But that that uh, plan, that destiny is uh, compromised in Genesis chapter 3 by the fall, and that leads us to the east and the west of reality that we lived in. And so first we talked about God's uh, kind of mandate for justice, which is the linchpin of the understanding of government. Because Cain kills Abel and because Cain has had many followers, because uh, God demands justice of humanity. He has commissioned us and called us as a society to maintain and sustain that. And that has led to all modern expressions of government. So that's, that's the east of this reality. Okay? But we've also seen that simultaneously God was working towards a plan to redeem and restore fallen humanity. And that culminated in the sending of Jesus Christ and the proclaiming of the kingdom of God. Just like the demand of justice and the shaping of human government is a political issue, so also is the kingdom of God. That's the West. And we live in a time where both of those realities overlap and coexist. The reality of God's commissioning of government and the reality of God's commissioning of the church to proclaim the kingdom of God. Okay? But what we're missing right now is the South. In fact, maybe instinctively, as we talked about a positive view of government, that God's commissioning of government is to be representative of his justice, um, maybe you recognize, okay, sure, but what, when it, what about when it is unjust itself? Okay, yes, government is good and should be submitted to, but what about when it shouldn't be? Okay. What about when government supersedes its boundaries? overflows its banks, and begins to be destructive and even demonic. The last piece of foundation we need to lay this morning is that piece. Okay? 
And I have to warn you up front, because we're going to talk about this idea of the powers and principalities, we're going to be covering a lot of ground. We're going to touch a lot of things. It'll probably be too much, okay? Um, but the, the reason that's the case is not because these issues are obscure in Scripture or insignificant in Christianity. It's because we have a proclivity as modern human beings to ignore or avoid or even deny any unseen realities. And so we, we come in with a, with a tendency to just read right past these things and assume they have no connection to what we're talking about, whereas this morning we'll see it's actually very important. Specifically, where I'd like to camp this morning, although we'll touch a bunch of other places, is the book of Colossians. So if you have a Bible there, uh, Bible this morning, please turn it to the New Testament book of Colossians. If you didn't bring a Bible this morning in the pew in front of you, you should find a black-bound hardcover Bible. There's an index right at the front that will help you find the New Testament book of Colossians. And we're going to look at chapter 2. Sometimes I think I should just get a camelback for my coffee. you want a good window into the reality of what I'll call this morning the spiritual realm, this real but unseen aspect, the book of Colossians and its sister letter, the book of Ephesians, are pretty good places to start. Uh, They reference these things quite a lot. The verse I want to draw your attention to this morning is in Colossians chapter 2, and it's verse 15, but let me lay out the context of what Paul is talking about here. Effectively, he is explaining the significance of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. And in the verses leading up to verse 15, uh, there's pretty common, well-known Christian realities that are easy to understand, like forgiveness. Okay? We believe as Christians that Jesus' death was not just a tragedy, but was vicarious, was on our behalf. It was death in our place. And therefore, forgiveness is available to us. Okay? Um, we see that in the text this morning. We also see that through his resurrection comes newness of life. And so God doesn't just offer us forgiveness, but empowers us by his spirit to live that God-glorifying, made-in-the-image-of-God life that human beings were destined Uh, destined for in creation. But it's the last one he adds to the list uh, that, that may surprise you or at the very least may fall in a category of I don't know exactly what that means. Okay, I'll show you what I mean. We'll, we'll read the verses leading up to it. You'll see the familiar, and then you'll see the threshold into unfamiliar. Let's pick up in chapter 2, verse 13. And you, who were dead in your trespasses... And the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Okay, so forgiveness, 
the requirements of the law nailed to the cross and die with Jesus, newness of life, all of that is bread and butter, basic Christianity. But what does it mean when it says that he disarmed the rulers and authorities? Let's pray, and then we'll seek to answer that question this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the places that it helps us to see the unseen, where it helps us to understand the things that are because the hidden variables become clear. And this morning, as we look at this propensity or this tendency for power to corrupt, I pray, Lord, that you would guide us and lead us through this, help us to shape our understanding of our calling in this world as Christians, as well as the way that we use and utilize power. We pray for the help of your spirit to teach us this morning in Jesus' name, amen. The biggest question to answer in understanding Colossians 2.15 is about nouns. Who are the principalities and authorities, the uh, rulers and authorities? Okay. Now, these two words, rulers and authorities, generically are just words that mean in Greek the same as they are translated in English. Rulers and authorities is a very good translation for these words, and recognize that those words in Greek as well as English are generic, right? You could be a ruler of all sorts of things. You could be an authority of even more things. They're very generic terms. But it's clear here that Paul has something specific in mind. And so the question is not, uh, not answered, you know, in the semantics of these words, but conceptually, what is Paul talking about? And if you look throughout the New Testament, including in the writings of Paul, you find that he engages with this same language in many places. And let me just highlight a few of them for you. One of them is uh, actually earlier in this letter. Okay, so look uh, at Colossians 1.16. Here again, it's talking about Jesus Christ, and it says, verse 16, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. You see those words, rulers and authorities? Same words here. And so Paul here says that God, through Jesus Christ, created all of the world, the things we see, as well as the unseen things, and that includes thrones, dominions, rulers and authorities, seen and unseen. So obviously, rulers and authority here are political terms. But they also seem to be more than that, don't they? A, a cursory reading of just this one verse makes us think, if they're seen and unseen, there must be an unseen reality to them. There must be a spiritual side to them. Okay? Here's what Paul says in the book of Ephesians in chapter 6. He says, we today wrestle not with flesh and blood... So our fight is not with other human beings, but with powers and principalities and rulers and spiritual forces of darkness. Again, same words, same spiritual aspect. I'll give you another one, and this one, and if we had gone to first, you would probably read as being more simple than it sounds. In 1 Corinthians, Paul is talking about how what God did 
in the cross of Christ seems foolishness from the outside. It's weak, it's death, it's shameful, it's embarrassing, it's naked, it's, it's exposed, and the world looks on and goes, that's the God that you worship? That's foolishness. And he says, but it's the wisdom of God. And he says, even though that wisdom was hidden. And he said, for if the rulers of this world knew, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. Okay, now let me unpack that for you. He says, if those who were in charge understood who Jesus really was, they wouldn't have put him to death. Okay? But what Paul is suggesting there is not just, we made a mistake. Oh, if we had known, we would have never attempted. It's what happens in the cross is what we read about in Colossians. It's somehow the disarming of those same authorities. Okay? In other words, it's a trap. Okay? An unseen trick. Okay. Think of all of the films where the villain at the end ends up being or bringing on him his own demise. Okay. That's what the cross was. What he says here is that the rulers wouldn't have put Jesus to death if they had known that would be the end of their authority. It was a trap. It was a surprise. Okay. To put it in the words of Colossians, the very destruction of Jesus was the disarming of the powers and principalities. Okay. Now, putting all of this data on the table and then drawing a whole lot from other places that we're not going to touch on, especially in the Old Testament, basically people have come to two conclusions about these powers and principalities. Here they are. One, we're talking strictly about the human political realm. Okay? In other words, the rulers of this world in 1 Corinthians that we just read, that's Pilate, that's Herod, that's the Sanhedrin. Okay? Those who put Jesus on trial and put him to death. Okay? And so this becomes strictly a text about politics and how Jesus sets aside those things. The other suggestion is that this is strictly spiritual. That whatever the powers and principalities and spiritual forces of darkness are, they are demonic and have nothing to do with the world that is. The problem is, when you weigh all the data, it's clearly both. There's some sort of connective tissue between the world that we see and we know. Real institutions, real structures, real rulers, and the spiritual realm that we don't see. Still, real institutions, powers, and structures working through, if you will, the powers that be. In fact, just one last thing, and I know I'm throwing a lot at you this morning, but that passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it's not the rulers of this world, as your translation probably says, it's the rulers of this, and the Greek word is aeon, the rulers of this age. Okay? There is a chronological element to what's going on. So let's let me, let me kind of lay out a framework for you here. When we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, we see two parties in resistance to God's authority. The first one we've talked about quite a lot, that's us as human beings. Adam and Eve are tempted to disbelieve that God's rules are good, that God's character is good, and to set up instead their selves as authorities make their own way, determine their own right and wrong. Okay. But how do they come to that place? They're tempted. 
right? There's this other character in the garden, not just Adam and Eve, but the serpent. And it's the serpent who puts this seed of doubt into Adam and Eve. Will you really die if you eat of this tree? And then gets really specific and even theological and says, you won't die. In fact, God has told you this to keep a good thing from you because he doesn't want you to be like him. But if you eat of the fruit of the tree, you shall be like God. But here's the irony of what happens. If we just take that and if, if, if we remove the serpent from the story, then what we have is human beings in autonomous rebellion against God setting themselves up as authorities. But there's another element there. Because as Eve believes the serpent, she somehow becomes subservient to him. Right? He offers the promise of autonomy and freedom and godlike status, but in actuality, it's enslavement. Okay, this is why John tells us in one of his letters that the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. There's a relationship here. In Ephesians, it refers to Satan as the prince of the air, the ruler of the sons of disobedience. Okay? Which is very strong language for basically saying, if you're not under Christ, then you're under, somehow, demonic influence. Even Jesus refers to the religious leaders of Israel, and he says, you're not the children of Abraham, but the children of the devil. Intense, yeah? What is the relationship between these two things? I would suggest to you this morning that this makes all things clear, answering that question. And here's what it is. That the, the aspect that makes the demonic demonic is the same aspect that makes government demonic. And that there's a correlation, there's a relationship between those two things, and it's very simple. It is the proclamation that I am God. Okay. In other words, and this is really important, when we talk about government as Christians, we do not see it as a necessary evil, but as a limited good. Okay. When we talk about government as Christians, we don't see it as a necessary evil, something to be tolerated because the opposite, anarchy and chaos, is even worse, but a limited good. And let me do the same thing with the spiritual realm for just a second. When we talk about the devil, we don't have some sort of dualistic view that there's God and light on one side and the devil and darkness on the other side and that they're in some sort of battle but they're equal powers. Satan and the entire spiritual realm, these powers and principalities and forces of darkness, what did we see in Colossians? They were made by God and for God. In the same way that we talk about humans being fallen, so also these. But they were created as good and for good. Now I want to draw your attention to one more passage that kind of unpacks this. Before we turn there, I want to explain what it is we're looking at. In the book of Ezekiel, who was one of the prophets to Israel, there's a section where he, uh, he prophesies about all the wickedness of the nations who surround Israel. Israel. In this particular passage, he talks about the prince of Tyre, okay? T-Y-R-E, not T-I-R-E, Tyre, okay? 
And what's interesting about this passage is he criticizes the prince of Tyre for seeing himself as divine and then halfway through his prophecy moves on and begins to talk about the king of Tyre and makes the same claim. But what we discover as we read it is that there's a rubbing of shoulders there. There's more than meets the eye and it's the bridge that connects these two things. And so uh, if you can find it easily... Go ahead and turn back to the uh, Old Testament book of Ezekiel 28. The prince of Tyre was a real historical human ruler over the kingdom of Tyre who had a name and a family and a history and all those things. And so when the passage opens here, it's addressed to someone that his entire audience knows by name and has maybe even seen, you know, even if it's just stamped in a foreign coin. But notice the critique of this human ruler in chapter 28, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, thus says the Lord God, because your heart is proud and you have said, I am a God. I sit in the seat of gods, in the heart of the seas. Yet you're but a man. And no God, though you make your heart like the heart of a God, and you are indeed wiser than Daniel, no secret is hidden from you. But your wisdom and your understanding, or by your wisdom and your understanding, you've made wealth for yourself. You've gathered gold and silver into your treasuries. By your great wisdom and your trade, you have increased your wealth, and your heart has become proud in your wealth. Therefore, thus says the Lord God. So do you get the trajectory here? Man becomes king. Man makes smart decisions. King becomes wealthy. King starts to see himself as ultimate power in the universe, okay? As above other human beings, as one who can get away with anything, as one who shapes history in his own image. He says, but you're only a human being. And so notice as it continues here, therefore, Verse 6, thus says the Lord God, because you make your heart like the heart of a God, therefore behold, I'll bring foreigners upon you, the most ruthless of the nations, and they shall draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. They shall thrust you down into the pit, and you shall die the death of the slain in the hearts of the seas. Will you still say, I am a God, in the presence of those who kill you? Though you were but a man and no God, in the hands of those who slay you, you shall die the death of the uncircumcised by the hand of foreigners, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God. Death, and death at the ones he thought he was more powerful than, will bring about the entire disillusionment of his theological mistake. Undefeatable. The mover of the hands of history, surrounded by his enemies and destroyed. Now that story has played out a hundred times. But as I told you, Ezekiel doesn't stop there, but he moves on, and now he begins to talk about the king of Tyre. And here's the thing. This word for king, which is rightly translated, doesn't resonate with historians when it comes to Tyre. Okay, that word for prince, that would have been an acceptable word for the ruler, but if there's a prince, who's the king? And I want you to notice here, as it begins to talk, we get way off the grid of Tyre. Notice what it says, verse 12. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. You were in Eden. 
the Garden of God. Really? Have any of you ever been to Eden? Right? Haven't you read the beginning of the Bible? What happens when Adam and Eve are kicked out? The thing is blocked. No entries, you know, uh, burning sword, the whole deal. And yet here the king of Tyre is taking a vacation there? You were in Eden, it says, verse 13, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardis, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engraving. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. And then notice verse 14, you were an anointed guardian cherub. You recognize that word cherub? If, if you've read the Bible very much, you know the cherubim are a class of angels. If you haven't, you're thinking naked babies with wings. Just set that aside, okay? But notice here, this king of Tyre is not a human being, but a spiritual being. And why are we talking about him at all? How did this come up? He's in Eden, he's beautifully adorned, he's created, he's full of wisdom. In fact, notice here, I placed you, verse 14, you were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire you walked, you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned, so I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God. I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. Now, side note, just to connect the dots. Do you remember what it says about the serpent in Genesis chapter 3? Now, the serpent was more wise or more cunning than all the other animals. Okay. That's the same word here for, for wisdom. Okay. And then he says, I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you by the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade. You profaned your sanctuaries, so I brought fire out from your midst, and it consumed you and turned you to ashes on the earth of all those who saw you. Here's the point. There is something about the rebellion of this spiritual realm, of the God-created powers and principalities that goes down before the pages of human history. In other words, this is about as close as we get to an origin story for the villain of the Bible. Okay. But it's the same story as Genesis chapter 3. Effectively, Satan looks at himself and says, I am wise, I am powerful, I am beautiful, I think people should worship me. I think I should be the center of the universe. I think I can give God a run for his money. And then he walks into the garden and he makes the same promise to the crown of God's creation, human beings. Now, let me connect the dots with what I'm saying this morning. What I'm suggesting to you is very simple. It's that God, again, created human beings, as well as apparently the spiritual realm, and empowered them for his service, gave them real authority, the ability to make real choices, and the call to rule and reign on his behalf. But there was a rebellion and a resistance, and by definition... That rebellion is a divine enthronement. It says, no, I am the God of my own life. I am the master of my own destiny. I am the captain of my domain. And that danger 
coexists, as you all know, in every human expression of power and authority today. It is a juxtaposition. It is a correlated reality between the spiritual realm and the physical institutions that human beings make. And I can't trace for you the lines any clearer than I've done it this morning, but the relationship is there. Why do we talk about the Prince of Tyre and the King of Tyre? Because they're family. Do you see that this morning? So, simply put, to just touch on the things we've already talked about before we go back to Colossians 2.15, simply put, this is the line. This is the place where the church goes from submission to resistance. This is the place where our witness of the kingdom of God demands something different than merely honor and subjection under the kings that be. I can make this very clear by just pointing to the words that Jesus said. If we wanted Jesus' language, the words that he uses on politics, the language we would use is the uh, conversation he has about a Roman coin, right? He asks his audience, whose image and whose inscription is on this? He goes, well, it's Caesar's, somebody from the audience says. And he says, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God. When Caesar demands the things that only belong to God, he's beyond the confines of where he's supposed to be. This is why Peter and Paul, excuse me, Peter and John, when they are arrested by the Sanhedrin, because they've been preaching Jesus and healing people in his name, and the Sanhedrin goes, you're not going to preach in Jesus' name anymore or else. They go, you tell us if it's better to obey men than God. But as for us, we're going to continue to talk about Jesus. Why is that line so easy for them to navigate there? Because obedience to God is demanded. Okay? Now, here is Colossians again. It says that something in the crucifixion went down, a power struggle, if you will, between the powers and principalities as well as the authorities of Rome and Israel, and King Jesus. And we saw that last week, right, as we looked at this dialogue that Pilate had with Jesus, when Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this time, it's not of this world. We see this fight between the two realities. But go back to Colossians and look at the language here in Colossians 2.15. Here's what it says. It says that Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Where did this happen? What are the verses right in front of this talking about? Notice again, verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. At the cross, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The first thing I want you to notice this morning is the irony of that. Because who looks weak and unable to attack in the crucifixion? The powers that be or the king of kings? Wouldn't we rightly say, from Pilate's perspective, Jesus is a rabble-rouser, an, upri- uh, an, uh, an upriser, and a rebel. And how do you get rid of a rebellion? 
So here Jesus is hanging on a cross, can't even hold a sword because he's pinned to a piece of wood. We would say he's the disarmed one. The next phrase there is put them to open shame. You know that's significantly part of the purpose of crucifixion. Okay, we, because of the influence of Christianity and the reality of the human dignity of all people, no matter what they do with their lives, have looked for dignified death sentences when death sentences have been demanded. The crucifixion was not dignified. It was public. You were stripped entirely naked. You hung there. You defecated yourself. You were cursed by those who passed by and you lived there for hours, sometimes days, until you died. It was intentionally exposing and shameful. That was Rome's method. And then lastly, it says, and triumphing over them in him. That word triumph, I know we're used to it, it was a triumph, right? But it's actually a technical term in Rome. A triumph is not just a victory, it's a victory parade. So here's what happens. You're a Roman general, you're out on the fringes of Rome fighting the barbarians and you bring about a great victory. What happens is you have a victory parade back in the Roman capital. And you come in and behind you is all of the spoils of war and then the prisoners of war in tow behind you and it is your glory. For us, the cross is Christ's triumph. In, pa in fact, Paul profoundly in 2 Corinthians says we can find ourselves as the prisoners of war in the back. We are the spoils of Christ's victory. That's a whole other thing to meditate on. But for this morning, notice the irony here. The world, the powers and principalities, the governments that be have gotten rid of the Jesus problem. And Paul says, not actually. Actually, that is the place where the victory was. That is the place where the power was overturned. But again, let's look through the language a second time and notice how this happens, because this is significant. Notice what it says. It says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. How? The crucifixion looks like a failure and not a victory. It looks like weakness and not strength. It doesn't look like disarming, but being disarmed. Here's the thing. The cross of Christ shows the powers to be for what they really are. Think of it. Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh, the one who made all the powers and principalities the one that the government supposedly represent and oftentimes make that claim, don't they? We work on God's behalf. Rome said that they stood for benevolence and justice and society and civilization and all that is good. All good gifts come from the emperor. The Sanhedrin were the loved of God, his chosen people, the ones who followed him faithfully and represented his will. And God comes in the flesh, and they put him to death. The greatest injustice in human history is when the innocent Son of God is falsely accused, unjustly tried, and wrongly crucified. But it doesn't just show the great mistake 
of these powers and principalities. It also shows their true intentions. This is the great uprising, the final rebellion. It exposes them for what they are. Rebellious, resistant, imicable against God. But it also exposes their impotency. The only weapon they have, the greatest one in their arsenal, God-given in Genesis chapter 9, is the ability to take a life. And here they use it of an innocent man. Here they use it to get rid of a problem, to get a threat to their own authority out of the way, to again solve the Jesus problem. And three days later, the grave is empty. They throw everything they can at Jesus Christ, and it's not enough. He's raised. See, here's where government goes wrong, when it makes itself ultimate. Like I said, government is a limited good, but when it becomes ultimate, when it demands your total allegiance, when it presents itself as the final proprietor of all that is good and right in the universe... It's wrong. And it's not just wrong because it's bad, it's wrong because it's untrue. I think the powers and principalities that we're talking about this morning, it's it's about more than kings and presidents and senates and councils. It's about all the institutions that make up human life, okay? Birkhoff, a German writer who looked at the powers and principalities, he suggests that the place where we find these things functioning is in the isms. And this is the example he uses, being a German citizen after World War II. He says, consider nationalism. That's when the power becomes divine, self-enthroning, and says, we are the only nation that matters. We are the only race that has significance. We are as if gods to other human beings. And we can do this in many other plays. We can do this with capitalism. Whenever we elevate something to being the divine hinge of the universe, we as Christians are called to follow Jesus and go, no, not really. But the cross exposes all these things, again, on those three levels. It shows them to be a failure of their only calling. It shows them to be in rebellion to the God that called them, and it shows them to be incapable of fulfilling their threats. This is why Peter and John and the apostles that follow Jesus don't seem to bat an eye at the threats of government and power. This is why Paul says, I've come to realize that nothing can separate me from the love of God, not even the powers and principalities. The cross exposes government for not being ultimate, exposes these institutions for being limited, exposes the the foolishness of being threatened by them. Because whatever danger they can bring, they cannot take from us what God has given. When Martin Luther King Jr. was 
uh, involved in the civil rights movement, there were two major influences. One was Jesus. Love your enemies was a major issue of what led to the civil rights movement in its method as well as in its goal. Their goal was not to conquer the white man, but to convert him. His other influence was Gandhi. Because Gandhi had just recently brought about the independence of India through nonviolent methods, again, under the influence of Jesus and specifically the Sermon on the Mount. The reason why I'm drawing your attention to this is because it is so weird that that methodology works. It is so strange that the people who marched in Selma and other parts of Alabama and Georgia and Mississippi and endured all of the hateful treatment of those who were supposed to be in power somehow ended up turning those powers on their own side by enduring that hateful treatment. One time I was listening to Tony Campolo speak and he was taking this very classic, historically black sermon. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming, right? The crucifixion is Friday. The resurrection is on Easter, on Sunday and recognizing sometimes what looks like death and defeat is actually victory. And he says he remembers being in his young 20s and watching the protests in Selma. And he says, and when I saw the cops release the dogs and swing their clubs and all of these people just bow down and take it, he said, I knew that was the end of segregation in America because it was Friday, but Sunday was coming. Do you see the parallel there? Do you see how Martin Luther, in his crazy confrontation but submission, in the entire civil rights movement, how they stood against the evils of government and exposed them for being evils to an entire population who thought it wasn't that big of a deal? Can you imagine how many white people were tuning in who thought that these things weren't a big issue, that it was all blown up, and then saw normal human beings like them beat by the police? There's a correlation between these things. It shapes not only our calling in the church to challenge government that deifies itself and say, no, not really, but also our methodology and how we challenge them. But it begins here. It begins in this reality. But here's one last thing we need to understand. Last week we talked about how the kingdom of God coexists with the governments of this world, and that's according to the plan. It's temporary. The age of this world is coming to an end. The new age under Jesus Christ is coming to be, and that transition will be complete and final and total, and there will be no place for the kings of this world at that point. What I would suggest to you is here we see that Jesus has disarmed and put to open shame and triumphed, but he is not yet dethroned, but he will. And that's an essential part. Because the truth is, and this is a place uh, where we can again engage with the civil rights movement, a standing up for justice is good, but our goal is not to change the world. It may or may not happen. It doesn't change our success in what I would call the kingdom of God project. 
okay? Because the victory is guaranteed. We're just to represent it here. Like I said last week, we are an embassy from the future saying God's rule is coming. And it will come. So the goal is not to change culture or to make the kingdom of God on this earth, just to represent it, okay? But, but what we see here is essential because it means no matter what happens in life as it is, the powers and principalities, the ones that label themselves divine, just like the Prince of Tyre will find out they are nothing but men. And they will stand and give themselves, give an account for themselves to the God who they deny either the existence of or the authority of in the way that they live. And that is essential to make sense of human history. Because without that, we shouldn't even talk about justice. Let's just talk about power. Unless there is a full accounting, unless the same ones who put Christ to death here will stand before his throne in judgment, unless all of those who have deified themselves and destructively wrecked, wreaked havoc on the world as we know it will have a full accounting, we do not live in a just universe. But we do live in a just universe. And do you see how that changes the game as well? Because it means that we can look like failure every day in our life. Our witness can look defeated. It can look as if the powers that be, read the book of Revelation, are actually prevailing against the saints. But it's not the end of the story. And this creates such a profound paradox for us because it means the way that we engage with politics is both significant and open-handed. It means it's hopeful, but not unrealistically. It means it's not prone to despair and can navigate failure and maintains its persistence in daily life. And it means that it's completely and utterly undefeatable. Do you see why we had to add that element? This is the truth of the world we live in. Human beings can be terribly horrible people. We can do awful things. But when you try and do the math on the atrocities of history, aren't we always stumped looking for a hidden variable? Why do we take people like Hitler and we no longer see them as human beings? I wish we could. I wish we could distance ourselves, right? We've done this forever. That's why those are the barbarians who behave that way. And then we perpetuate our own atrocities in the name of society. But I would suggest to you there is a hidden variable this spiritual side, this alignment with Satan that is more than the sum of its parts. And again, brings a significance to the things we do as a church because we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but powers and principalities and spiritual forces of darkness. And that victory will be total, not just on earth, but in heaven. Not just on our little planet, but cosmically. Not just in the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. And it will be a testimony to the goodness and power of God and the reign of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.
Father, I don't know if there has ever been a time where human beings were filled with more fear and anxiety than now. I don't know if there's ever been a time where the political stake seems so high and the doomsday clock was at 100 seconds. But I do know that things are not what they appear. And we thank you, Lord, that in the cross of Christ, you unmasked the powers and showed them for what they were. You pulled back the curtain and showed that the marvelous Wizard of Oz was nothing but a humbug. You proclaimed the victory that will come, foreshadowed in your resurrection. And now, as it says in Psalm 2, you sit at the right hand of the Father until every authority and power is under your feet. We pray for our own witness as Christians, Lord. I pray just for the witness that comes from seeing how small things are. That we wouldn't be overwhelmed. That we wouldn't be, like we talked about in that series on the end times, apocalyptic Christians who think that every moment is the sign of the end, but we would remember what Jesus said. Wars and rumors of wars, but the end is not yet. That we would recognize that no human being has the power to shape history in his own image and break away from the confines of the God who made him. That we remember there will be an account. And that should make us strive for justice, speak for the voiceless, demand government maintain themselves as just a secular institution and not the divine right of kings but also to remember that we do not have to bring them to a full accounting. We do not have to establish heaven on earth. Instead, we pray that your kingdom will come. I pray as well, Lord, we would recognize and remember the spiritual reality of this, and we would realize that the tools we have are not the usual tools of politicians or lobbyists or these types of things, but we have prayer and we have the proclamation of truth, and we have the surrender of witness that kneels and takes blows because the blows cannot take what we have. And like Jesus in the cross, exposes the powers that be. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we respond and continue in worship,